Welcome to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast, where every week we review each episode of HBO's original television series, Six Feet Under, with your host and licensed funeral director, Victor Rubio. Hello and welcome to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast. I'm your host, Victor Rubio, and we are here this week to discuss episode four of season one, titled Familia. Uh, just a quick note, I want to thank everyone who has been listening so far and dealing with the clunkiness that these first three episodes have been, uh, the feedback, the emails, I, I do truly appreciate it. And just to give you a heads up, I'll be shaking up the format of the show in the coming week. So hopefully we can get a nice new spin or you know new take on things with other people chiming in. With that being said, let's get into this week's episode. Uh, Episode four of season one is titled Familia. This episode was directed by Lisa Cholendenko and written by Lawrence Andrews. This particular episode aired on June 24th, 2001. And our episode kicks off, as it will, uh, with our death capsule slash anatomy of a death, where we have Paco, or his real name, Manuel, in a gang-related area of Los Angeles with a pretty easy-to-tell scenario of where we're going to end up. You know, there's a nice horror movie-esque vibe with the cues and uh, just the lighting and whatnot, you know, had a nice horror movie vibe to it. And, you know, simply put, Paco gets shot for basically standing his ground, standing up for who he is, which will definitely set the tone and theme for this episode. But four gunshots later... And our Paco is dead at 21 years old. Uh, Familia starts out with an investigation as to what happened to the building Kroner bought in the previous episode. If you remember, it was on fire. And now the investigation as to who set the fire or how did the fire happen. We see here Hank earlier in his law enforcement career as a detective before he eventually becomes ASAC Schrader, as we all know, is cross-investigating Nate and Brenda as they've become the prime suspects of the building on fire. And I like the duality of the investigation, uh, especially when Nate is surprised that Brenda said he was the aggressor when they had sex in the house. The overall theme of the episode here, like I said before, Here we have Nate standing up for himself. Uh, When the female detective asks, did you call Gilardi a greedy little Nazi? Nate doesn't try to tone it down or hide away from it or explain the context of why he said that. He confirms it strongly, looks her in her eyes and says, yes, I said that. We have the mother and father of Paco, our character who got shot earlier in the episode, coming into the Fisher funeral home to make arrangements. And it's the first time we see a child or a young man dead at the Fishers. And we clearly see here there's a rift between the Bolines regarding who's going to pay for the funeral. And an interesting moment when the the Bolines comment that they've been turned down by other funeral homes because of the gang, family gang ties. Nate, with, with no regard to the actual business side of things, offers up that, of course, they'll take them in. They, they, they would never turn anyone away. David, being business-like, is, is not as quick as to offer the same gesture, at least not without money. Once David sees that the money being offered by Paco's brother, whose name is Powerful, he smartly and quickly gets Rico involved in the process. And the scene here where David confronts Rico to get him to help with the funeral, I imagine this will happen over the course of this TV series as we cover it, but being that this is television and all and having worked professionally for over 10 years and 
This goes for my profession or any profession. When you're a small business of around five employees and feel free to jack that number up to whatever number you think would happen, I think you would know what nationality your coworkers or your employees are. David's assumption that Rico is Mexican, that's not even the offensive part here. It's assuming his family has gang ties. And, you know, of course Rico gets upset by it. You know, how couldn't you? Just a funeral insider note to add here. Uh, general conversations like the one David and Rico happen happens all the time when you're doing work in the prep room as Rico is doing here. Uh, the prep or, or the embalming room becomes another place of business within the funeral home, but it still gets treated with dignity. I, I, I like the realism of the scene because you do tend to have conversations like that about what's going on and Rico is doing work on a deceased. So it's just not uncommon to see that and I just thought I'd like to add that in there. And when Rico is upstairs with the Bolines helping them make arrangements for their son Paco, uh, Rico again gets tested by Powerful, which I just have to keep saying is Paco's brother, on of where he's from. And back to back to be tested like that, it would make anyone testy. But Again, and again, this is the theme of this particular episode, Rico stands up for who he is. And and I like that. Rico is a strong character. He's not shying away from everything. And I like more that the Fishers are actually taking a step back for this funeral. One of the dark secrets of the funeral industry is how much race plays into the business. Uh, This isn't racism per se, but I have to believe it's one of the industries where race plays a factor but largely goes unnoticed. And what I mean by that is, Nate points out how much they would screw up this funeral by doing it themselves, because they are clearly white. And Rico should be the lead funeral director here because he could relate to the family more than the Fishers can. And are the Fishers not able to help them simply because they are white and not Mexican? Absolutely not. But a family grieving like the Bolines are would like a familiar face or or personality as opposed to one that's not. It makes the business transaction seem so much more personal if the family and the funeral director can relate to each other. I do want to note there are a few race issues I would like to get into regarding the show with along the caveat of the industry side of things, but I'm sticking to the quote unquote script of things right now. We have our first, what I would like to call air fist pump scene of the series, you know, kind of when someone gets, tells someone off or a character does something where they are, I guess, standing up for themselves or just doing something you're proud of. Uh, Here when David and Keith are out shopping and for lack of a better term and just so we understand how and why this person is, uh, this punk calls Keith and David a gay slur, which I will not repeat on the show and I don't like to repeat even in person. Uh, We see here for the first time Keith's dormant anger problem come out. But if I'm being honest, I think Keith is pretty tame for what he does for what he's just been called. Uh, I definitely think it's important to keep in mind the time frame when this was being aired. It's 2001 and the LGBT community wasn't as accepted as it is today. And even today, there is obviously still questions. Uh, I imagine situations like this occurred a lot more often back in the day as opposed to today. Uh, Just so you could see where I'm coming from, where my stances are on this, is I'm a straight male, and I've never had any issue with any LGBT 
community or anything like that. And I'm fully supportive of them. Uh, my personal insight or take is, you know, I think one day we will look back on the hate that community has faced and us as a society will think to ourselves, you know, what were we doing? Why were we so hurtful? But that's just my take. Uh, you know, I think we'll look back and just see how silly we were as a society. But back to 2001, Keith really lays into this guy, and rightfully so. You know, let's ignore for a moment the fact that Keith is a cop. You know, how dare you hurl anything like anything that hateful at anybody? What gives you the right? And I think Keith put that guy in his spot. But as I deem the episode, you know, we're all standing up for ourselves here. Unfortunately, we have David in the background, cowardly, like not accepting the magnitude of what this punk just said. Clearly, David is not as comfortable in his skin as a gay man in public as Keith is. Uh, David gets to let his mind roam free later when he's finishing up prep work on Paco. Sort of like how you know Nathaniel plays each character's psyche. Paco becomes David. And I love how Paco accuses when they're, they're speaking to each other or David is speaking to himself through the lens of Paco. I love how Paco accuses of David of checking out his private parts and, and David being almost offended. You know, he's even uncomfortable in his own private alone thoughts. He, he answered his own mind as if he got caught stealing from the cookie jar. Uh, David, in his own psyche, is allowed to flush out all his thoughts regarding Keith. Almost childlike the way he does it, playing out his thoughts regarding what happened with Paco. David is still unable to see Keith's angle. Someone attacked them for being who they are. And I love how this is all going on in David's mind as he's going basically through the numbers on pilot mode, getting Paco ready for viewing. And by scene's end, we see that Paco is all dressed, ready to go in the casket. Even in Psyche, David talks business to himself when Paco comments on how much the price of the casket costs. Just, it's always constantly, always ongoing on his mind. Uh, David here finally starts to stand up for himself when he reveals that he's been going to church with, quote unquote, that black man to his mother, Ruth. And I absolutely love how Ruth and, and just the actress reacts, just that, that moment of acting. And she shows with just her face in a really quick scene, you know, she shows under, she knows under the surface her son is gay, but she can't accept it. And we just get that with a quick two second, you know, face emotion. And it's just great acting. I very often get the question if the bodies speak to me or if I speak to the dead bodies when I'm embalming. I mean, the joke I always get is the customers never speak back to you, which for anyone out there, if you ever meet a funeral director, I'm going to go with a full 100% that they've heard every and any joke regarding the industry that you could think of. And furthermore, they aren't funny. But when I'm asked the question, if the bodies speak to me or vice versa, this is always the scene I imagine what people think of. Obviously, this is a TV show and David having an inner monologue is not good or even watchable television, so he must have interactions with the characters. I personally have never poured out my mental or emotional problems while embalming. It will be weird to say this, but maybe you can relate. Embalming is somewhat of a therapeutic event. If you're experienced enough, then you don't have to put all your thought and all your will into the process and you can just follow the groundwork that you've laid from your embalming practice 
embalming becomes sort of a uniform process where you just follow the steps. And doing so allows your mind to wander and think about things. You know, your mind just kind of goes off into the distance. The picture cleaning a shed or, or cleaning your house. You're not thinking of each and every single action you're doing, but if you have a heavy mind, you could sort of work out the problems in your head. And that's sort of what happens to me personally when I'm embalming. But having said that, I don't make any emotional attachment to the deceased. My problems or thoughts are just that, my own. The Fishes are having Brenda over for dinner, and the Nate and Brenda relationship really opens up. Uh, Brenda is sort of a stubborn character. And what I mean by that is you can never get something straight out of her. Every comment to and from her is layered, and there's always a double or even triple meaning behind it, which is obviously a problem for Nate, as he's so direct, unfiltered. Uh, Brenda could clearly see something is up with Nate, and when Nate offers to not burden Brenda with her problems, you know, she, she puts a stopgap. She, she thanks him just to invite him to open up moments later. Again, it's a small gesture that happens between the two, but it's Brenda just putting up the smallest stopgap before Nate is allowed in. Brenda allows Nate to unload on her sexually, and it's at this moment Ruth walks in. Ruth, the the most angelic character on Six Feet Under so far, you know, she can't even tolerate curse words. To see her son going down on Brenda is just a huge shock to her world. Uh, the dinner scene here, although it's quick and short, I, I think it's a great comedic short. It plays, it really plays into each character's traits. Ruth is essentially having an infomercial-like interview with Brenda uh, regarding Brenda's profession, while Claire is just the oddball teenager commenting and laughing wacky off the wall. David tries to talk business during dinner, and Nate, not being able to sit in the artificial or the, the fakeness of it all, gets up to spend a moment alone. Uh, to me, the highlight of the scene here is when Brenda offers, you know, I, I don't put my thumbs in people, not at least part of my job. Uh, at the wake for Paco, and he's still here joining in David's psyche, he comments on the music. Like I said earlier, David is becoming more confident, and his inner self wants to change the music. If it was possible to rework and see the scene again without Paco at David's side, I would like to think David would want to change the music, but would be too afraid to disrupt the ebb and flow in the week. So Paco's ghost he really allows David to speak up. Uh, there's a scene here where Claire and one of Paco's gang members go downstairs to smoke some weed. And I have to say, to me, was probably the weakest scene of this series so far. I don't buy them smoking weed inside of a funeral home. Because keep in mind, a funeral home is just that, a home. And, and it seems like there's no consequences here. Um, there's nothing that builds up to it and nothing that happens after it. And to add to it, I, I don't see how or where this character movement fits or ties in with the storyline of the series, or even more with this particular episode. There's a scene here where Mrs. Boleyn kind of is overflow with emotion and has to go to a side room to just blow off some steam. And here's where Nate joins her. I really love Nate's dialogue here and it spoke to me personally because it's sort of my tactic when I'm dealing with family. Nate, always being the unfiltered one, offers up basically that there's nothing he could say that could help her at this time. And I believe that. I feel it's as honest as I can be with families when I say that. There's no cliche or phrase I could say to a family who just lost a relative. As a funeral director and just as a human, I believe in the grieving process. You know, feeling your feelings and letting it play out. Your worst enemy during this time 
is just that time. You need time to heal, time to grieve. And I believe in the healthy grieving, feeling those lows helping in the long run. I personally feel giving empty gestures or cliches softens the reality of death and, and gives people something false to hang on to. I really relate with Nate here on how to speak to a grieving family member. Just pure, blunt truth and honesty. I like the subtle LGBT flag placed on the altar of David and Keith's church. They really let you know that they are in an open and progressive form of service they are intending. Uh, an excellent executed moment for the show when church lets out where David asks Keith, do you really think I hate myself? And it's at that, that exact moment, the woman leading the church service leans over and says to David, nice to see you, David. It was just a nice wink to us, the audience, David having a self-realization of sorts and you know, answering the questions he's left in the dark. Keith, always the strong one, is willing to wait for David to accept who he is, but won't go backwards for David. In an episode where characters are standing up for themselves, Keith, although having stood up for himself earlier in the episode, stands his ground here with David. Uh, later on, David and Nate pitch their business plan to get a loan from Ruth, to which she happily accepts. And although I would argue at the cost of companionship. Uh, Fisher and Sons now have to compete heavily with Kroner as they are growing and attacking Fisher and Sons. And this loan here from Ruth helps them. Ruth, which we can't forget, is still grieving her husband and she needs and wants family interaction more than ever. She's constantly in her family business and rightfully so. Her interest charge here on the $93,000 loan is for David to attend church with her. She's asking for equity in relationships with her family covered by the veil of equity in the business. Uh, later on, Paco, still playing the role of David's psyche, gives him a nice pep talk in preparation for the sit-down with Gilardi. Of course, it's all in the mirror and sort of a cliche movie moment to talk to yourself in the mirror. Paco basically says here is, you know, talks about his corner, which is easily relatable to David and Fisher and Sons behind his corner. Uh, Paco's message or David's message to himself is to not take no from no one and, and be a man, which we see David finally step up and stand up for himself. Because one day when your mind isn't on Fisher and Sons, I will find you or someone you love. <laughs> I'm not saying anyone's going to die. There are tragedies far worse than death, things you couldn't even dream of, you spineless candy-ass corporate. Just give me a reason. your decision are we really worth the trouble mr gelardi lunch is over get lost if i'm being honest i think the scene here was a little too cheesy for my liking and a bit of outside of the show's element i don't think gelardi would stand up after a personal threat against him but for the show's sake let's take it for what it's worth David is finally able to let go of all the aggression and stress Gilardi has been causing the Fishers. And what I did like here that it was David was so focused on getting his message out that he could have easily wavered once Gilardi laughed in his face. But David was determined. And as we see, although very cheesily, it scares Gilardi out of the restaurant. Paco's funeral, powerful ask the, the Fishers to join them in a closing prayer. Again, being honest here, just like I said with the scene before... And I realized 
while doing the outline for this episode, I found a lot of these moments cheesy or just not fitting in with how the series has played out so far. But a funeral director note here, does this happen where a family asks the staff to partake in a closing prayer? Absolutely. And it's really nice to be asked that of a family. It's moments like that that answer the question, you know, why did you choose this career? And while this is Paco's funeral for his family, it's also Paco's funeral for David Psyche. His job was done as David is that much more comfortable in his own skin, as we just saw with Gilardi and as we see right after this in the bowling alley with Keith. The show toyed with us that Claire was the person who set the Kroner building on fire, but if you're paying attention and if it had to be someone in the cast, you could tell it was Brenda who set the building on fire. Uh, Nate has sort of a snapback, which may or may not confirm it, but it winks to us, the audience, that it most likely was Brenda. A pretty bold move to make not knowing any of the consequences, but we'll see why Brenda may or may not have done this in coming episodes. And to close out our episode, Ruth and Claire have a real human moment. And you know, Ruth asks Claire if she set the building on fire. In a time where Ruth is fiending for some family companionship, she sort of has a twisted satisfaction when Claire reveals that she did take the foot, and Ruth gives this, you know, ironic satisfaction, which is sort of what Six Feet Under is all about. That ends our discussion this week on episode four, and like I noted throughout the podcast, I personally think this episode was a bit off in terms of the way the first three episodes have gone. Having said that, I did love how David sort of came into his own, and I hope to see more of that as we progress through the series. I want to thank everyone for listening so far. If you have any questions, concerns, or just want to discuss the episodes further, please send me an email at diggingsixfeetunder at gmail.com or look out for my podcast posts on Reddit under the subreddit Six Feet Under. Thank you, and join me next week as we'll be discussing episode five titled An Open Book. Thank you for listening to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast. Join us on the next episode as we review each episode of HBO's original television series, Six Feet Under. Please search and subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes under Digging Six Feet Under. The Digging Six Feet Under podcast is in no way affiliated with HBO or Six Feet Under, and the views expressed here are solely that of the hosts. No infringement is intended.